Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. And I'm excited to be here today with Sam Peters and Albert Grossman, Portfolio Managers for the ClearBridge All-Cap Value Strategy. Sam is also a Portfolio Manager on ClearBridge Value Equity Strategy. And Albert is also a Portfolio Manager on the ClearBridge Small Cap Strategy. And the topic of today's podcast is Value Investing at the Crossroads. Thank you both for joining me in the booth here today. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $140 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So welcome, everybody, to joining in to the July podcast for ClearBridge. I, I sound like a broken record here um, because growth is still outperforming value. Uh, if you look at the large, mid, or small cap range, it's a trend that has continued for the last 18 months, but we may be at an apex here. You know, if you think about growth stocks at this point, um, making a, a really corny analogy here with summer, um, growth stocks have been getting a lot of sun. Kind of like my face, I've uh, just gotten back from a baby moon and I should have stayed out of the sun for the last four or five days. Uh, if you check out the picture on the uh, Twitter link, uh, you'll be uh, laughing and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But I, I think we may be at a crossroads where two of the dynamics that have been making value stocks underperform may be changing at the margin. First off, the market obviously has been dominated by growth stocks, specifically uh, large cap mega tax tech stocks have been driving a lot of the market's returns here recently. And secondly, we may be exiting a period of historically low interest rates. So are we at a crossroads at this point? Yeah, this is uh, this is Sam, and I'll, I'll start off with that. You know, it's timing these cycles is always very difficult, and I, but I think it's to give context. Why are we having a growth cycle? And we're having a growth cycle because growth stocks start out where you didn't have to pay for growth. And this is always initial conditions are what matters. And so if you don't have to pay for growth, it's great. Well, guess what's happening? This is natural in cycles. Expectations are rising. Growth stocks have gone well. And, and why does money get attached to stocks? Because the price is going up. And of so course. you've had a lot of that, which is the spirit of your question. And the issue that that it happens now, and eventually it'll collapse under its own weight, is this expectations keep rising and keep rising. One of the biggest changes you could have would be to your uh, to the spirit of your question is if interest rates rise, um, then that would start to chip away at those expectations. Why? Because many assets, and especially the most favored assets, which is growth, have been floating on sort of low interest rates. And L- so, low for, cost of capital, it's basically exactly, free at this exactly. point. Exactly, they have a free cost of capital, and it's fed on itself. So you have all these feedback loops coming on. But as you get higher expectations, you just become more subject to change. And you don't know what that change is going to be. Um, you know, I'd love to tell you some narrative that will <laughs> kick it off. That's why the timing's so hard. You're going to be surprised. But things are changing. Things are always changing. And it's just as expectations rise, you get more valuable, uh, vulnerable to change. And again, the biggest change would be a cost capital adjustment. Yeah, I think obviously rates have risen from, uh, I think the lows were 1%. 0.4% back in the, the middle part of 2016. We've added double at this level. I'm personally of the opinion that the rate market is just taking a pause, a, a breather after a pretty large move, and, and it will resume its upward trajectory later this year. 
Yeah, you know, I think the the big thing there is, it, you know, the cycle started off with incredible pessimism. That set up growth stocks well. We now have optimism. And optimism and pessimism, they don't turn off. It's not a switch. And you're seeing capital spending. You're seeing changes in behavior. And think about where rates bottomed in the summer of 2016, as you mentioned, Jeff, at 1.4%. This was the, you know, this was the peak Brexit. Um, this was lower for longer. This was when the, the deflation boom, the was, deflation boom, was going to happen. Was, exactly. Bond proxies were ascendant. Low vol was ascendant. And since then, they've been derating. Why have they been derating? Because of small incremental change from really what were the all-time low in rates. I agree with you. I think that journey is continuing. That would be the path of least resistance, in my opinion. Now, you know, why interest rates are rising is a very important determination. Is it because of higher growth or, or higher inflation? Um, or is it going to be some combination of the two? Would that potentially weigh on market multiples if it's more inflationary than just better growth? Yeah, as, as anyone can tell, context is what matters, and it's it's critical. And so absolutely, if it's, if it's you know, uh, higher growth, if it's faster growth, and so it's healthy rise in rates, um, that's great. If it's an unhealthy rise in rates, meaning people are starting to freak out about the bond market for whatever reason, building a term premium back into treasuries because of political risk or something like that, then all bets are off. And then I think all assets are going to suffer from that. So uh, the, I guess the way I think about that, Jeff, are we going to have a benign birth to a value cycle at some point <laughs> or, or a bad one? <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, that's really hard to call too. My guess is still more on the benign side from what I can see, but you just never know. I was going to add just uh, to date, what we've seen is that the inflation has taken away the growth in wages. So real wage growth has been relatively flat. Yeah. Wages have been going up. 2.7%. They actually decreased from last. So wages have been going up, but on a real basis, they continue to be relatively flat. So from a potential broadening growth, that would be an important aspect. And to your question, that would partially determine whether it's for good or bad reasons that we see rates go up. Well, inflation expectations, if you look to the five-year, five-year forward, uh, it's been pretty well penned. Um, so it remains to be seen whether you can see a de-anchoring of that deflationary mindset that investors have very uh, you know, come to, to realize over the last 10 years. Um, so thinking about what type of market we're in right now, um, it's a momentum-driven market. Um, obviously what's worked has, has really worked. Uh, the, the FANG stocks come to mind. Um, obviously, uh, if, if you looked at the beginning half of this year, um, as of 6.30, the top 10 names in the S&P 500, they made up over 97% of the markets returned. And out of the FANG stocks, all of them were included in there except for Netflix. Netflix. So it's been a very narrow market. Um, so in this momentum kind of driven market, how are you designed to deal with with that type of environment? And, and you know, how do you see yourself uh, persevering, if you will, um, as uh, if that continues for the next couple quarters? Yeah, Albert will chime in on this, too, because it's it's something near and dear to our hearts. We we tend to buy negative momentum stocks when we're buying them. We're valuation folks. So that's generally where we get the lowest expectations. But we're, Albert and I, if we do our jobs right, we're dreaming of them becoming positive momentum stocks. <laughs> so it's sort of like you're, you're planting negative momentum crops because that's where you can buy stuff below business value. And then we let them work. And then the, the, the tough part of Albert and I's job is then at some point they work too well. That's the debate around the growth cycle. And when they work too well and price and value have converged, then you have to step off. But there's always a portion of our portfolio within the value universe that has positive momentum. 
And so they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, your ideal is that you want positive price momentum and you don't want to pay for it like everything. You want cheap, uh, good valuations in there. So we tend to, within a value universe, be able to to balance that out. Yeah, in many cases, uh, the outcome of our picks will determine whether they do become part of the momentum, whatever momentum area there is in the marketplace. Uh, for us, the most important part is to focus on what's discounting the stock at the time of uh, that we invest and compare that to the range of potential outcomes. Like a prob- and, probabilistic range of outcomes, if you will? Yes, absolutely. It's not Just binary, trying, obviously. Yeah, so it's not binary. It's not uh, dreaming of one scenario and hope that that will happen. Is What is this company worth on, under a wide range of scenarios? Uh, because that starts taking into consideration the risk that we take when we invest in a specific security and the potential of the interaction between the different securities that we own that form the overall portfolio. Now, speaking about risks, I know that that you both have said that the biggest risk in the the current market right now is rising liquidity risk. Um, What exactly does that mean? Are we talking liquidity from a central bank perspective or from a different perspective? No, for me, it's it's almost like a psychological uh, perspective. As expectations rise, it's very simple, Jeff. You're just asking more from the future. You're asking more growth. You're asking more cash flow. And so it ties into where we started with the growth cycle. So you're, when you're asking more from the future, uh, you've, you've got to assume that the future is either going to be the way it is today and good for whatever has high expectations or better. And the problem is, why is that? So that's continuing to extend. So we're asking more and more from the future. So that's a longer dated sort of promise that you need for the future. And more of this price then, exactly. And, and But why is all this money coming to stocks? Well, money is coming to stocks because they're going up. And so that's all about price momentum. And price momentum tends to be a shorter-term factor, if you will. Valuation tends to be longer. So as you're expecting more, you're extending out what you're asking, yet the behavior and what's driving capital is shorter-term. And at some point, that mismatch is going to get too great. And when it gets too great and we've concentrated so much capital around sort of growth and, and especially the fangs, that narrative is so powerful for investors, that's where all the capital is. So when the situation changes and you the expectations get missed, then I think there's going to be a gap. And anytime there's a gap, there's just a liquidity mismatch, meaning the bid-ask spreads could get very, very wide. And we, we've gotten a couple of uh, instances of this over the, the last several years, right? I mean, I, passive hasn't ha- been as big as it has been ever as it is right now. I think it's closer to 50% of the assets under management out there. But um, we've had a couple of instances like uh, maybe 2011, um, where you saw that situation happen in 2012. But obviously, the scope and the size of the passive market has grown at, at this point where I think you you could really be into a different type of animal if it happens. Yeah, I think I think the way the markets work these days, digital makes things more efficient. So they're really linear until they're really not linear. So they, they'll move along and, re, and get reinforced with momentum. And then when things change, and Albert and I see it all the time, you just get really explosions of volatility that in, that you've always had with markets. Human beings don't change. Behavior doesn't change. But it's been accelerated in some cases, in my opinion, by the, the shift to digital. I know that, that you guys look at something called anti-crowding. I guess that would be, the, you know, similar to, to looking at the, the momentum-driven markets and, uh, you know, this move into passive looking for stocks that aren't overowned. So if you do have this type of breakdown, um, you will be able to sidestep a lot of it. I think the, the best thing you can do for the portfolio 
um, from a value perspective is get away from the concentration. And, and, and in my opinion, nothing's been more flattered by the cycle than the large cap U.S. growth type stocks. And so the market, you don't have to junk it up. And Albert's really great at, at finding high quality away from the indexes. You can go to things away from the index and, and you don't have to buy low quality. You can buy good growth options that aren't favored by the market, but you can buy lots of things away from the indexes right now and get paid a lot for it. And, and that's the beauty of avoiding concentration is hopefully you won't face a liquidity risk and you can actually do well uh, from a turn. And more recently, um, we've observed that growth has, has become more broad. So as opposed to just the FANG stocks or whatever limited number of stocks that had the growth and therefore the premium was, I don't know the magnitude, but the premium was understandable that it, there was a limitation of growth in most areas of the market. We started to see that broadening out in a wide range of uh, parts of the market, some of which have not priced that in. So those are where the interesting opportunities may lie. Now, let's move over to the the strategy itself. So I, I know uh, a lot of managers define value in, in a certain way. How do you define value for the, the on-cap value strategy? Yeah, I think definition is critical here. Um, the words value and valuation have um, different meanings to different people. And some people might think it means cheap. Just- some people might think, a lot of people think it just means low multiples. And to us, value is what is an asset worth. And we're trying to compare that to the price. Uh, and then understand what you're willing to pay for that. So price is a given, and we can understand what the market is discounting that price. The value of the company will depend on how the future turns out. So that's why we take the probabilistic approach of trying to understand what is a company worth under a wide range of scenarios. The other part of, of, of that that I think gets misconstrued is separating value for growth on, with a very sharp red line across the middle is that growth is just a component of the value of a company. So there's the value of the current assets, there's the value of growth opportunities. So in our, so to get specific to what we do, our goal is to buy things that are discounts to intrinsic value. That seems somewhat vague, so really more specifically is thinking about what is the value of the current assets and the current uh, cash flows that this company can produce as it exists today, how is that discount in the marketplace? And then think about the, the growth opportunities, what areas they could deploy more capital, every turns they exceed the cost of capital, and how much you're paying for that. So really separating the two and understanding what you're paying for uh, and understanding uh, as things develop over, over time, when we invest, uh, we like to have a varying perception, under, a clear understanding why our opinion differs from the market. So as new information comes to place and price changes, we can update that and understand if we still have an investment case, what it's based on, and make decisions that way. Common pitfall that that a lot of value investors fall into is they stock is undervalued, quote unquote. It's uh, well below what it's traded at for the previous ten or twenty years, um, but it may not get back to its previous valuations because maybe that that fundamental picture has changed. Better known as a value trap. So. How do you avoid or recognize those value traps? I think, uh, I mean, first and foremost, um, I guess going back to definitions, the value trap, the way we think about these low multiple stocks that are 
as the future develops, it just turned out that that wasn't low enough. Uh, the expectations were properly calibrated or maybe even a little too high. So for us, the attempt to avoid those is a couple things. First, as I said, to have a variant perception. Why is it specifically in a quantifiable way that we have a different conclusion than what the market is discounting? So as new information come, comes available, you update that and you understand the reasons why you invested or not if they're still present. So what we don't want to do and we try to avoid is we don't invest because it has a low multiple and we certainly don't continue to be investing in a company because it now has a lower multiple. That is a value trap. If we invested because you have a different a variant perception, stock goes down and you continue to own just because it has a lower multiple now, I think you're putting yourself and your investors at a, a, a considerable greater risk. Yeah, I mean, the the simple way I look at it and echoes what Albert said, it's just value is shrinking over time and the price falls the value down. And you got to be honest about that because as I mentioned, as value investors versus, say, a momentum investor, we do, and, and Albert alluded to this, we have a disagreement with the market. So we think expectations are too low. And the way I just really summarize it, if the expecta- if the market ends up right and we weren't low enough, the expectations were low for a good reason, and they're staying low and getting lower, meaning the value shrinking, um, then we want to stay away. And I think one thing that, that Albert and I always make a point of, we ultimately want, um, in almost all our holdings, I can't think of one where you don't, we want intrinsic value to grow. So we want returns above the cost of capital. So even if we're buying a company that isn't in that situation right now, most of our scenarios that we think through, there's a, most of those scenarios have situations where they can grow value. And if we don't get to that better area, then, then we have a, probably have a value trap. One area of the market that the some investors think that could be a value trap right now is financials. Um, I think financials were down 13 days in a row in late June. I think, I'm not sure if that's a record, but it's got to be pretty close to one. Um, that's an area of the market that you're overweight and that you're seeing some opportunities there. Uh, speak to us a, about maybe a stock that you're, you're finding interesting. Yeah. So, and and this will echo what Albert and I just talked about, you know, for a, for a very long time, uh, post blowing up for the most part during the great financial crisis being the locust, they had to fix themselves. They had to fix their balance sheets. And the regulatory framework did that. So we have one of the probably, arguably the best capitalized, most liquid U.S. financial system we've ever had. That's a huge bullish thing, by the way, as you well, as we both and now know. now Dodd-Frank is easing. Exactly. So now you had to fix, so you fix the balance sheet that's critical. That's what the regulators want. Now you're fixing the income statement. And what I mean by that is, by and large, many, many U.S. financials have returns on equity, returns on tangible capital above their cost of capital. So they're building value again. That's classic. So they're they're hitting that check mark against the value trap that Albert and I talked about. And so they're building, they're compounding again. They're building value and they're still very safe. And over this entire cycle, we've been able to find, which is remarkable because it was such a, a, a deep bed of pessimism, we've been able to find financials, and we still are today, that are well below book value, that have that have fortress, using Jamie Dimon's terms, fortress balance sheets. I've just never seen this in my career. And you have fortress balance sheets and a path, they're either there or a path to returns above the cost capital. That is good value investing and there's still opportunities. And the final part, the change that I think the world needs to think about, if the tail risk that's out there, if we get higher rates, if we get higher rates, the beauty of financials right now, if, if we don't get higher rates, that's okay, we'll do okay. If we get higher rates, a lot of the financials are cheap options 
on that happening, on that change. And one of the things Albert and I are always looking for in our process is cheap options on change because that's what the world's all about. And if you're on the right side of that, it sets up convexity, it sets up more upside than downside, and you can do well. Is there a name that that you like, uh, they have in the portfolio that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I mean, one of our biggest ones, and we're building up the position, is AIG um, and has a, a great uh, new management team. It's a, arguably the best management uh, insurance management team I've seen. They were had fixed their balance sheet, so they have excess capital. Of 08, yep. Absolutely, they're generating about six billion a year in capital, so they're still adding to that strength. And uh, but and it's a fix; it's a turnaround. If you just look at the net investment income, just if they didn't, if the underwriters didn't show up every day and they just had their investment portfolio, AIG has about eight dollars in in earnings power. And they've been earning about four. So they've been they've been destroying value on the core insurance side. That management team has said by the end of the year, they'll turn it around. If so, um, earnings over the next several years could go up, say, roughly 50%. The stock's at 50% of book value. It's 50%. assuming it'll—I'm sorry, 70% of book value will continue to destroy growth. We don't think it will. And this is the beauty. This will highlight our process. If this great new management team doesn't turn around the insurance— we're not going to lose much money at all. It won't be a great stock, but we're not going to lose more money. If they do turn around, like he says, we've got at least 50% higher earnings power. Um, the returns will go well above the cost of capital. We'll have a very nice stock over the next several years. Hence the variant perception versus the market's expectations right a- now. Absolutely. The market's extrapolating that they'll continue to s- destroy value, that they're not going to turn around the insurance operation. It's all, of course, that's a probability. It could happen, but we're getting very paid for, getting very well paid for it to change and the probabilities are shifting our way. And and the floor is essentially in on this stock. If they continue to destroy shareholder value, it's priced as that would be the case going forward. Exactly. Now, moving over to a different part of the market, industrials. Industrials have has been one the one one of the areas of the market that has had difficulty um, over the past four or five months. Obviously, a lot of that is because of trade war concerns. Um, some investors are fearful that we're getting close to a big drop because industrials have the highest correlation with the S&P 500. So is this the canary in the coal nine or is this just an aberration? What are your thoughts there? So um, I think it, Albert and I will both handle this because I think it'll highlight sort of how we work together. A lot of diversity here. So Albert and I have been working together for for two decades. Um, he's more on the small cap side. I'm more on the large cap side, but lots of, of, of different areas that we've looked at. So we've populated the industrials very broadly. Uh, GATX is one that Albert brought to us, rail leasing that's been a great stock for us. We've played the housing cycle with Stanley Works and, uh, and uh, Owens Corning. Um, we have the aerospace cycle. So there's not, it's not big thematic. It was our bottom-up process, but it allowed us to get a lot of things through. What I would say with trade and the spirit of your question um, is tr- global manufacturers in the U.S. have enjoyed massive margin expansion because of they've made very efficient global supply chains. Tariffs in a trade war are attacks on those supply chains. So we're getting nervous about the margins. We're not we will go through our bottom-up process, see where we could get hit, and we may adjust the portfolio to to get away from that risk. But a lot of the things we have are sort of ignoring that. And then the bigger, broader question Albert and I have is, will PPI translate into CPI? And this is sort of your inflation question. Yeah. You're clearly seeing some pressure from higher materials. Albert mentioned sort of like the consumer getting squeezed, faster wages, but getting hit by CPI. Can they pass it on, which would make his point even more acute, can they pass that? PPI and the CPI. 
Yeah, uh, material cost and transportation costs have been the ma- the major drivers of the PPI, and uh, at this point, looks to continue. Uh, but I think the important point too on uh, uh, just a broader point on looking at our exposures for, on any fund from a sector standpoint, I think it misses a lot of the nuances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether you talk about financials, uh, and there's like yes, we're overweight banks, but so we're overweight. Uh, consumer finance, which is a different dynamic that, that that they have underlying the the businesses, on industrial same point we don't have we're not overweight, uh, the heavy capital equipment, long term durable investments that one thinks of or may think of generically when you say the word industrials. While we have aerospace exposure, uh, we also have things like housing. As Sam said, we have housing and autos. And other other things that are more consumer that gets classified in, under industrial. So it's looking at the second layer, the industry level, and uh, we haven't had that much exposure from the way we think of of the risk of a major uh, issue from a trade standpoint. But if there is a trade war, it's going to impact everybody. Everybody's cost is going to go up, and the question becomes: Can you pass it on or not? And I, I think that would probably relate to the amount of competitiveness, competitiveness in your particular industry. With a lack of competition, you can pass that on to the consumer. If it's a highly competitive market, you're probably going to have to eat that through your margins. And one example of that that we have been beneficiaries of has been Nucor, uh, the steel producer, where tariffs have been imposed on Im- Im- importation of, uh, of materials and price of steel in the U.S. has gone up tremendously. And because of the lack of supply, they've been able to pass it on. So there's been a beneficiary so far, uh, but that brings other risks. Well, and, and you mentioned PPI, um, the producer price index, whether or not we're going to be able to pass that on or, or the producers are going to have to eat that cost. One area that's seen a major move um, over the last two plus years has been energy. Barrel of oil went from below 30 uh, to today around $70 a barrel. Is this an area that you're you're finding opportunities, or do you think that this has run its course at this point? No, we're we're definitely finding opportunities, and I'll I can phrase it very broadly. Um, is you know when there was peak supply a few years ago, which uh, you know 2011 that really drove the the brick cycle, if you will, where we were running out of every commodity. Remember that, Jeff? I mean, I do. Experts, everybody put you know 100 percent probability we're running out, and we're gonna you know it's gonna be a problem. That resulted in massive optimism, terrible capital allocation. So in capital-intensive businesses, you get a capital cycle. Optimism is your enemy because everybody believes it, um, and you end up with too much supply. Now we have peak demand. Um, That's the narrative. And in my opinion, and I because think— Because of EVs, is destroying that demand over exactly. the long term. And both of those are—ultimately, you're going to get peak supply, and you're going to get peak demand. So they're not false narratives. The problem is we have to live in the interim. And right now, we're seeing some of the best capital allocation behavior because of that pessimism that I've personally ever seen in my career. They're talking about things I never thought the upstream energy producers, the guys that poke holes in the ground. Um, they're talking about free cash flow. Uh, they're talking about returns. And we're actually seeing it translate. It may not, it won't last forever, but it's a very good cycle. And the decisions that are being made today, even with peak demand, so you know, whenever a decade out, two decades out, we're going to, I think, have a, a classic undersupply cycle in the interim. 
And the stocks are still not reflecting that and especially not reflecting the better return to capital allocation. And then another area that Albert and I have found is just volume plays. So we've done stuff in midstream. Um, and then Albert, we have uh, found several stocks that Albert put on the radar that um, are not necessarily tied to that cycle, but they went down with that cycle. So some of the industrials and other things. So we're playing it again very broadly, but we're trying to find companies that in this new sort of more pessimistic environment where you have good capital allocation, where it's not reflected in the stocks. And we think over the next several years, as that comes to fruition, they'll do well. Well, you've seen a barrel of oil go up significantly here, but you've seen energy stocks lag. Um, so that I think that the floor is is probably priced into those stocks. And if oil just stays at these levels or continues to go higher through geopolitical risks or shocks, um, you could see a, a pretty quick re-rating. Yeah, I mean, two two things. Again, we don't do a lot of macro. We're not doing top-down thing. We think about our scenarios and we just say, hey, we want free options on change. Bad things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen. But two ways that cycles age, and you've done a lot of work on this, Jeff, is higher rates um, and the Fed's active there. And then and then energy spikes, you know, material spikes. And you've uh, that's the spirit of a lot of your questions today. So the nice part is for both of us in financials and in energy, we position this portfolio. We're two big macro risks. We're not paying for insurance. So again, one thing I'd love to pass through today as value managers and a value strategy, we just don't want to pay for good things. We want to, if bad things happen, we don't want to get killed. And if good things happen for us, that we can we can take advantage of change. Well, for all of you listening, um, energy has outperformed for every cycle going all the way back to the 1960s at the very end of that cycle. And a lot of that is predicated, of course, on oil price shocks. Uh, well, that's all the time that we have here today. Uh, Sam, Albert, thank you so much for ch- joining me in the booth. Thank you. Jeff, thanks very much. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we hope to have you on the next ClearBridge podcast. Thanks. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of July 16th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the use of this information. 